0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 368 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Lois Price speaks with Anne Morgan about travelling the world by motorbike, the way writing changes a journey, and the challenge and value of understanding each other.
1: In the early 2000s, Lois Price packed in her day job, learnt to ride a motorcycle and set off in search of adventure. Tens of thousands of miles later, she is the author of three books, charting her journeys across some of the world's most fascinating and testing terrain. I caught up with her over the internet to hear more about her travels. Lois, where did writing start for you? i had always enjoyed
2: writing and reading uh, all my life really so ever since I was a child I've I've kind of haven't stopped reading since I started If, and uh, I would often be found with at least five books on the go at one any one time as a child so I think uh, reading you know feeds into writing I think all writers are, are readers first probably but it never occurred to me uh, to make a living out of it I suppose it just seemed too far-fetched really although i do vaguely remember being a child and you know uh in in response to the what do you want to be when you grow up question uh also was amongst many other things but but it definitely were, was there but then i got waylaid um by music and i worked in the music industry after leaving school until uh, i was about 30 and then uh that's when Uh, due to various uh, events I ended
1: up becoming a full-time writer at that age. And your writing is a very particular kind of writing because it's not the sort of writing that you can just do sitting in a room on your own it involves travel doesn't it how did that come about? Indeed so
2: I I suppose I'd always enjoyed uh, traveling to a certain degree but no more than anyone else really just on family holidays as a kid and I enjoyed the, the kind of road trips and when I was 13, I had, a, I think, what was probably quite a profound experience when me and three school friends, all 13-year-old girls, headed off on bicycles with no grown-ups for a week's cycling holiday in Cornwall, which I think nowadays people would be horrified at such a notion but <laughs> that was the uh, the 80s and the, we were a bit more free and easy I suppose then and that really gave me the I think the love of the, the uh, spontaneous and the impromptu travel just waking up somewhere different every day never knowing quite where you're going to spend that night I didn't kind of go into the gap year thing like a lot of my friends did I, I worked straight from leaving school but by the time I was kind of in my late 20s I was really itching for some adventure and I was working at the BBC in quite a good job at that point uh, in their music department, and I just knew that I couldn't stick it out for the rest of my life, and I had to, I had to kind of get out. So I learned to ride a motorcycle, and I decided to ride from Alaska to the bottom of South America, and that is, uh, I mean, that was obviously wow. an amazing experience, but it is also, I think, probably the most fantastic thing that came out of it was that it gave
1: me my new career as a writer which uh, was a kind of byproduct almost mm. when you planned that trip did you know that a book might come out of it or where did the book come in in that experience exactly
2: yeah no I think this is really interesting and I think it's also a a sort of a a story of of hope and optimism for people who you know think how do you get published you know I'd never published anything in my life at that point I'd always done a bit of writing in my job because I I would write in my various jobs at music companies and record companies I would write the descriptions for the CDs and the liner notes for the albums and that and press releases and I was that was my favorite part of the job so it seemed kind of natural when I set off on this journey. I mean, I had no idea what I was going to do, how long I'd take, when I would get back, what, what I would do when I get back. And it was the kind of early 2000s, 2000, 2003, and there was no such thing as social media then or even blogs really. Blogs, maybe, I don't suppose they were called blogs, but people were sort of in the infancy of setting up own personal websites for things.
1: Weblogs, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My <laughs> father's a, um, a software engineer and he wanted to learn HTML and uh, he said hey why don't i do a website about your trip so i can learn to make websites and you can just send me the content or whatever so we decided to do that for fun and it was just really for that purpose and also just for my mum to have a look at my friends or you know i don't know if you will recall those early days when people used to sort of send group emails about their activities (laughs) to friends and family i don't think people really do that anymore but so I would write these uh, descriptions of what I was up to and send them out to my friends and family. And my brother would take the text and put it on this very clunky looking website. <laughs> and I would, I had, didn't have a digital camera, so I would get my snaps developed wherever I was. So I'd be like going into some sort of development place, in Guatemala City or whatever, you know, and then posting actual photos home, which would take weeks. And then my brother would scan them and <laughs> on this website, I mean, it sounds so crazy now because it, it doesn't really feel that long ago. But in technical terms, um, it's a, it's another age. It was so mm. sort of like it was a sort of analog world meeting the, the you know the new digital dawn, and then suddenly I was getting all these emails through my website from random people saying you know, oh, I love all your stories of your adventures. If you're ever in Kuala Lumpur or whatever, you know, come and stay. Or, you know, visit me when you're in Santiago, Chile, (laughs) or, you know. I was like, who are all these people, mad, crazy. And so my brother sent me an email one day, I think I was in California. So I'd been maybe on the road for like a couple of months. And he said, your website's getting 2,000 hits a day. And that was quite a lot in those days. I was like, wow, that's pretty weird. Uh, but it was really nice because I was connecting with all these people lots of motorcyclists and travellers and, and uh, just just it was just really fun and then I stayed with some friends of friends in California and one of them was an author not travel or anything but she had an agent in New York and she said oh, I think my agent would really like your writings. I'll put you in touch and so I got in touch with her and she said yes yeah, all good carry on do the rest of the trip and when you get back to England we'll put a proposal together And that's what happened. I mean, I say that's what happened, but there was, you know, Mm. 19 rejections, I think, first. So before she got me a book deal, but eventually she got me a book deal. First in America with St. Martin's Press in New York. And then she got me a deal in the UK and various translations and stuff. So it was incredibly exciting. and, And as I say, totally unexpected. I had no intention of writing a book when I set off on that first fateful day (laughs) from Alaska.
1: It's, you know, it's so interesting because one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you is I think that we both have explored the world in different ways through our non-fiction projects. I did a project to read a book from every country in the world and actually the story is very similar to yours in that I set up this blog for personal interest and again a very similar thing happened to me and I got a book deal from exactly very similar sort of trajectory, which I find really interesting because... I particularly enjoyed your book, Revolutionary Ride, about your journey around Iran, which is your third, yeah. your third book. And I found so many parallels. I mean, you're obviously, I'm sitting reading books, you're off the scale in terms of being intrepid, <laughs> yeah. going out there and doing all these amazing things. So it's very different in that sense. But something that really struck me was that that quest, which you also started the, you got the idea for in 2011 didn't you um late 2011 which is exactly oh, the same wow. time I got the idea for my reading yeah. the world uh, project and both of them came from comments from strangers Um mine was a comment on a blog I was doing at the time but yours was something different wasn't it someone leaving a note for you on exactly. your motorbike because how yeah, did so that happen?
2: 2011 relations between the UK and Iran were particularly low at a low point due to the sanctions there had been protests against the british government in tehran and protesters had attacked the embassy the british embassy and firebombed it and whatnot i mean these things are quite common you know over the years it's not an un- unusual but this was quite a particularly bad one and, <laughs> and so diplomatic ties have been cut and all the staff from the various embassies so so uh, Tehran had expelled the British staff and then there's a tit-for-tat situation as it always is in these situations and all the staff from the Iranian embassy in London mm-hmm. were sent home as well so there's kind of this very awkward situation and I mean even to the point of where there was a poll by the World Service and British populations sort were of favoured going to war against Iran they really viewed Iran as an incredible Serious threat against Britain, so uh, that's the stage that we we were at then. And I just happened to be out and about on my bike in London, where I lived near the Iranian embassy because my brother worked at Imperial College, so I was meeting him for lunch. And I left my bike parked nearby, and when I got back, there was this note left on it saying, "You know, cool bike or whatever," because it looks like you know, looks very much like a bike that has been around the world. (laughs) Uh, Have you ever been to Iran? Don't believe what you read in the newspapers. We're friendly people. We're not terrorists. That was amazing. We're not terrorists. And I just thought, wow, that's a pretty wacky thing to do. But, I mean, you know, wackier things have happened to me. And and I thought it maybe was a fellow motorcyclist or something that... Because in this sort of small world of motorcycle travellers, we sort of know each other and know we even know each other's bikes, you know. So it sort of not wouldn't be unusual for someone to, to leave a note saying, oh, hi, you know. So, but it wasn't anyone I knew. It was just a kind of random Iranian. And actually... It sounds strange to tell that story but actually once you've been to Iran and met Iranians it makes perfect sense because that kind of behaviour is totally normal. And when I finally did make it to Iran I was absolutely inundated with people foisting hospitality on me and insisting that they're not terrorists so actually it's a it's a, a recurring theme as anyone who's been to Iran will tell you but that's what piqued my imagination and uh, you know I was always looking for a good next adventure I'd just come back from Africa a few years before riding from London to Cape Town and I suppose I was probably getting itchy feet again so that was almost like serendipity that gave me a, a good idea. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean it was kind of about addressing a blind spot, wasn't it? Cuz I mean you say you're very honest in the beginning of the book about how you had all these ideas about what Iran was mostly fueled by the western media and, you know, the stories that we heard in the UK, but realizing that maybe that wasn't the full truth and and maybe you didn't know the full picture and so it was kind of curiosity that drew you, wasn't it? Is that always the case with your journeys? Is it always wanting to find something out like that? I
2: think so. But I think that specifically was about Iran and Iranian people, because I did realise that I didn't know anything about it personally, uh, really only from what I'd read in the news or heard on the news. So that's never a a good start, (laughs) I found. But I only Hmm. kind of realised that that was not a great way to form an opinion from having done my other trips. So uh, uh, the first trip was not, I have to say, it was not you know about me sort of being enlightened and wanting to find the truth about anything. You know, it was about me escaping mm. from a dreadfully boring office job. <laughs> that was a kind of more of a personal test. Can I do this? Am I the kind of person that can get on a motorbike and ride it halfway around the world and fix it by the side of the road and ride through snowdrifts and mountains and crashes? And you know? It, it, so that was very much a, a sort of personal test for me. But I'm no longer enthralled by that sort of thing, really. I think you get that out of your system maybe quite young. So that was fine for the first one. I just wanted a proper adventure, old school, you know, girl zone shall we call it (laughs) adventure and i think maybe there was more uh, the second trip i did through africa and my second book which was called red tape and white knuckles that was again a massive physical personal challenge because it's crossing the sahara the congo angola and but there was also i was sort of more interested in what was going on around me and the the uh, culture and politics as well so i think As I went on, I became less interested in me, shall we say, and more interested in the world and other people. And when I got to Iran, I just really realised that Iran is way more interesting than I am. And that's what the book had to be about, really. Uh, But, you know, but I'm not um, I'm not a, a sort of heavy hitting history, political writer. I'm really most of all interested in people normal people how they live and their thoughts and that and Iran is just an absolute wellspring of, of conversation I think the Iranians are probably the greatest conversationalists I've ever ever met so for me who loves to talk and listen to people's stories
1: it was an absolute joy. So the, the second two books Red Tape and White Knuckles and Revolutionary Ride when you started those journeys I guess you knew that they would lead to a book hopefully did knowing that you were going to write about it change how you approach the journey did that affect your planning at all
2: yeah it's really interesting actually because you're right in this, the second one because after my first book my editor said to me do you want to do another book and I said yes I'd love to ride through Africa and he actually didn't want me to do that trip he wanted me to ride across Russia because Ewan McGregor had recently done that and he thought I should just copy and McGregor and I was like no way <laughs> <laughs> I hate cold places and I don't want to, <laughs> I, I like chopper, trop- I like tropical fruit <laughs> and the sunshine and so Africa is and and I think as a from a motorcy- motorcyclist point of view that journey is like the ultimate adventure that kind of cape to cairo type of idea it's like a classic overland route and I really just I, I love to go south you know I love all the noise and the clamor and the color and uh, so I'm a very much a, a heading south kind of person rather than kind of dark cold <laughs> climate so um so i insisted that i was going to go to cape town and so i got a book commission which was great but yes it does affect you slightly i mean you're always thinking wow this will make a great chapter or oh I hope something happens you know but in africa you can never be bored there is never a boring moment so that you cannot possibly nobody could travel the length of africa and not come out with an you know an amazing story to tell the strange thing that happens is I think when you know that you're commissioned, and even if you're like commissioned to write an article or something, it's the same, you're torn between wanting everything to go smoothly because you've put lots of time into your planning and organisation and everything, but then also wanting exciting things to happen. And those two things are complete opposite. because of course if everything goes smoothly just like you planned it then you haven't got a good story so so you have to keep reminding yourself when the disasters happen that actually this is all great material for the book but at the same time the other part of you is like oh god help you know what so that was a, a constant battle I suppose but really, I just got swept up with the journey because it was just so thrilling and so exciting and, and at times incredibly taxing and dangerous and scary and amazing. So that was all good. And I suppose that book is the most sort of hardcore adventure style, I suppose. Um, but then in Iran, I did think about sort of trying to pitch it around before I left, but I decided against it. It'd been a quite a long break between that last book, the, the Africa book. I really needed a break after that trip. So by that time, my editor had moved on somewhere else and everyone had left the publishing, you know how it is, they all leave and go to another job. So I didn't know anyone back at my old publishers. I thought I'd I'd be better off getting an agent in the UK for various reasons, but having an agent in America is great because you get an American deal, but it means that all the British book sales and deals are as a foreign right rather than Mm. like a home. Do you see what I mean? So um, Yeah so it wasn't and all and most of my sales were in britain so so I, I i thought i'd better be better off sort of getting an agent here anyway it all just got uh, kind of too hassy and i realized i didn't really want to be thinking about all that kind of stuff i wanted to just do the June. i just wanted to go to iran on my own ticket and and just mooch about and see what happens and it's so much more liberating to, to do it that way so i just went and as soon as i got there like I said, I said god this is just going to be this is the most interesting place i've ever been in my life and i mean you i could I could write a hundred books about Iran, you know so and I actually ended up going three times
1: yeah, and now that the traditional travel writer is a white man, obviously you're a woman how I think in Iran that was particularly relevant wasn't it? in fact, I spoke to a a young Iranian recently about your book, and he said, no, no, no that's not possible in Iran for a woman to do that um. <laughs> <laughs> he was completely adamant there's no way you could have done it and i said well i've got this book that shows this happened <laughs> how i have how... <laughs> the videos the family, happened. <laughs> absolutely so how does your femaleness affect your travel writing does it give you a different perspective how does that how does that work yeah it definitely does
2: i mean i should say for that, that your iranian friend is is right in that he's probably thinking about the, the laws specific to Iranians. Iranian women are forbidden from riding motorcycles and bicycles. So he might not realize that actually those laws don't apply to foreigners. So there are quite a few females that have ridden motorcycles in Iran. So that, that's how come I was able to do it, but that's how come you don't see any women riding motorbikes around Iran who are Iranian women. So as a woman, yeah, of course it makes a difference. Uh, sometimes it's actually an advantage because you're never viewed as a threat. People on the whole want to look after you and they worry about you
1: <laughs>
2: and, uh, and they, they tend to take you in and feed you and make sure you've you know, got what you need. I mean, that is honestly the reaction all over the world. I mean, of course, there are some wrong-uns and people that will, you know, men usually that'll behave badly and I have had a few experiences of that. But on the whole, when someone sees a single woman in their country, they want to make sure they're okay that's my overarching experience. The other thing I think positive is that you see sides of society maybe that a man wouldn't be able to enter. So you might get invited back to say family situations where like, you know, if you're a guy on a motorbike riding around Iran, you're probably not gonna get to chat to many women or get invited into so many family situations maybe. I mean, I'm not sure if that's necessarily true in Iran because they're, they're so incredibly hospitable to everybody. But certainly in in other cultures, obviously, and then you get the kind of entry into the female world. So, you know, uh, going to a beauty salon in Tehran, for example, is a fascinating experience. So I think from that point of view, it's actually positive. And Freya Stark, who's a great travel writer from the 1930s, I'm a huge admirer of. She travelled around Iran in that time and she has a quote something like, the great thing about traveling as a woman that you can always pretend to be more stupid than you actually are. and People <laughs> believe it, <laughs> and unfortunately, that is still a reality. You know, if you, if you, I mean, I'm I'm not a fan of that. Start taking that approach of like playing the dumb, the dumb blonde. You know, well, redhead rather. But you know, you can like, oh, help me, help me if you need to. You no, know. well, the man probably doesn't have that advantage. But I, you know, i brought up by a good old Greenham Common feminist mother so i, I don't tend to go down those tactics and try to um fix my own mechanical problems and weave my own maps and get and all of that stuff
1: I, I don't think that anyone could accuse you of not being intrepid in any way from having, <laughs> well, having read your book <laughs> well
2: i don't know i mean obviously i am mere, merely human and not 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 a, a superhero in any sense you know and i think that's really important point is that I'm not a, a very you know I wasn't an experienced motorcyclist or some army cadet or anything you know I'm a just a normal size shape person who decided to to have a go and I think it's really important to make that point um I you know I, I'm not fluent in any foreign languages I haven't got like a private income sadly <laughs> you know but I think that's one of the great things about this kind of travel that's on a on a kind of cheap transport of your own is that unlike something say like if you want to sail the atlantic or fly a plane around the world or something you know you'd probably need to get sponsors and and be especially trained and all of that stuff and have really super high-tech equipment but if you want to just get on a bicycle or a motorbike or in a, even in a car and just get going there's no reason that you can't do that really so it's a very accessible form of travel But the downsides of being a woman are, of course, all the obvious ones. And you do realise when you start travelling how utterly fortunate we are to live in a Western country where our rights are enshrined and we can do all of this stuff. You know, most women in the world simply cannot get on a motorbike and ride around the world. So that really was brought home to me, you know, to see how most women live, especially in the developing world. So that was
1: really a good lesson, Mm. I think. You say towards the end of of your book, Revolutionary Ride." I wondered if we could ever truly understand each other and if not, did it matter? Obviously in in recent years, the kind of ideas about truth and who controls which story and all that have become increasingly important. Mm. And I was wondering whether you you reflect back on your trip now with, with any different perspective given what's happened with storytelling in the world today. Well, I think that all stories are valid. I mean, I do
2: understand that there has been, uh, as you said earlier, leaning towards the, the white Western male. And that's, that's really has been unhelpful, I think, for a lot of people. But, I'd, but at the same time, I'm not keen to do down the white Western male because they also have lots of stories to tell still. So, But I do believe that the other voices should be heard especially in travel writing, we need to hear other people's viewpoints, definitely. And I I mean, I've thought that for quite a long time, actually, because I do uh, quite a lot of teaching with like the Arvon Foundation and various writing courses and stuff. And, you know, I I remember uh, um, an Egyptian girl that was on one of my courses and she was writing about Backpacking around Europe, you know, and I felt like, oh yeah, I've heard about backpacking around. We all know about backpacking around Europe, you know. So, from a travel point of view, it's not very interesting. But her perspective was really interesting because she's wearing a hijab and she's out in discos, and you know, all these German guys are telling her to take her hijab off and be free, and you know, it's like, well, mm-hmm. on, hang on. Yeah, so, so suddenly seeing seeing that kind of Euro backpacking train travel from her point of view really was really really interesting. And so I think just more of that, yes, please, definitely, because we do definitely only at the moment sort of tend to view foreign countries from from our point of view, and I think that yeah, we I'd like to see kind of a, a wider perspective, definitely. Uh, well, just going back to that question you said about can we do we, can we understand each sure other? Does it matter? I mean, the thing mm. I suppose that I've I've found from all of my travels is really that although there seems to be huge differences between us and when we're traveling and you meet people that live these entirely different lives you know a woman living in a straw hut with 10 children in the middle of central africa or something or some you know army general in iran or whatever who's fought against Saddam hussein you know all of these people but there's so much that connects us out. The connections are much, much stronger. And, and, and I think that the one, that's one thing that traveling like this in such a kind of vulnerable way, where you're not protected by any tour or guide, or you're not sort of sitting shielded by a car or a bus or whatever. And you're just out there and you have to connect with people that are completely different from yourself. And that's when you find really that actually it's the governments that are the problem, not the people.
1: Mm. that is a point that you make repeatedly isn't it it's the difference between the private citizen and the government is that something that you you've come to bring to your perspective on other things as well do you think that holds true in other countries or even in the UK yeah I mean in Iran I think that's a, it's, it's
2: never but you know that is the most extreme exper- example of it when you talk to people and you realize that in no way do their leaders reflect their views or they're just so so different and you know and of course we're all sort of led the, the way that even that the news is reported you'll you hear it say Iran says this Iran says that the US says this France says that as if that country means all those people think that and so we sort of subliminally take that on I think and then of course you go anywhere and you'll find all sorts of differing opinions and, and these ideas are just reflections of the of the, the regime or the, the government or whatever you know and I thought well most people say Iran and they think of an Iranian, they think of uh, Ayatollah Khomeini or somebody that looks like that, an angry bearded Muslim. But <laughs> the majority of Iranians aren't like that at all. And then I thought, my God, imagine if they think of, I say I'm from Britain and they think of Theresa May, you know, I'd be absolutely mm. horrified if they <laughs> associated me with her. So, so you know, when you put it down to the nuts and bolts like that, the nitty gritty, it's kind of, it's obvious that that we don't all have these, Collective ideas, really.
1: Mm. Now you're a founder of the Adventure Travel Film Festival. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? And have you made any films about your own adventures, or are you sticking to writing about those? Right. Yes, I, I do stick to writing. I
2: mean, I've got got a few short films, but I'm definitely um, words more than moving image. But I am married to a filmmaker, so that's ah. why. And he's travelled a lot as well and made many films about his travels. So because of that, he would often get sent films by people who'd done amazing journeys, completely random people or from all over the world. So he had this amazing collection of films, some of them from old vintage classic films from the sort of 30s and stuff that people dug out and thought, oh, you might be interested in this. It was all home burnt CDs coming from Poland, and you know, all these kind of really amazing obscurities, but really incredible. And so he thought, wow, this should all be shown. You know, people should know about this stuff. So that's how come the film festival started and obviously i'm you know in that world as well so i started we started it together and so it's not just about films you know i teach writing workshops there and it's about all aspects of travel spreading the love really that's that's the the general
1: vibe Mm. and do you have any more journeys planned are you is there somewhere you'd love to go what's what's the next plan for you
2: well, I I do. I mean, I'm always thinking, you know, uh, and obviously we're talking now in the middle of. well. It's not quite lockdown, but it's certainly not the kind of free and easy international travel that we used to know before the pandemic. I don't mind. I'm taking a bit of a break. I'm actually kind of recovering from long COVID. So I'm not really, <laughs> I haven't really got the energy to jump on a motorbike at the moment. But there are places I want to go. I'd love to go to Japan. But most of all, you know, I, I miss Iran every day and I've, just long to be back there. So I I really want to go there. And I'm actually writing a, another book now, a, a novel, a historical kind of p- political thriller thing set in Iran in the 50s. So that's what I've been doing during this uh, non-travelling
1: time. Wow. Well, best of luck with it. And Lois, thank you so much. It's been a complete pleasure.
0: That was Lois Price in conversation with Anne Morgan. You can find out more about Lois on her website at www.loisontheloose.com, and that concludes episode three hundred and sixty-eight, which was recorded and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode three hundred and sixty-nine, in a new series, Sita Brahmachari speaks with Julia Copus about her significant three little things. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.